Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. We've been in a series in 1 John for the last five weeks. 1 John. Now today uh, is 1 John part 6, and I'm calling it this, the equation of perfected faith. How many of you guys are math? I, I wanted to say nerds so bad, but I didn't. I didn't, okay? How many of you guys like math? Okay, we're going to do exorcism after this. <laughs> How many of you guys remember, I, I specifically in high school went to a school where uh, I did algebra and I did geometry and then algebra two, but the specific textbooks that we had um, in the back of the book gave all the answers. <laughs> the only problem was, is it didn't show the work. How many of us would love if we could get all the answers and not have to do any of the work sometimes with, in everything in life? Not just like ministry, not just like God, but like just like a paycheck. But the reason I'm talking about this is because we're going to read in 1 John, focusing today on chapters uh, on chapter 4, 11 through verse 21. What we're going to be focusing on is this idea that John introduces of perfected faith. And it's not just something that he says one time, two times, three times, but four times in these 10 verses, John talks about this concept of faith made perfect, which for me is something that I think begs to be noticed. You know, the reason we've been studying John is because in my opinion, 1 John is one of the uh, last letters written in the New Testament. And I mention this every week, but the reason I do is because it's important for us to understand. I think a lot of us don't realize that John's perspective is unparalleled. What I mean by that is he, this, this letter is written 30 years after the Apostle Paul's death. Anywhere from A.D. 85 to, A, to A.D. 95, it's written. And not only that, John has seen it all. He has been persecuted. He has seen all the other disciples martyred. He has been somebody who has been exiled, who has been imprisoned, who has been tried to be boiled in oil by Rome to be killed. Some believe that he, they tried to poison him as well. This man has seen everything. He has walked with Jesus, pioneered the church movement, seen the persecution, and now at the end of his life is trying to to coach the church back into alignment. And that's why I love this particular book. Because what we see is there's no man who is closer to Jesus on the face of the earth than him. And at the tail end of his life, after he's seen 60 years of church growth and expansion, he is now calling back in his final moments alignment in following God. So as we get into today, that's why we've been focusing on it is because I believe this is John looking out at the wider culture of spirituality and following Jesus and saying, man, this isn't really cutting it. This isn't really cutting it. And so as we've been studying, we only have two more weeks, but I, I'm pretty proud of us for spending nine weeks in first John. We're hardcore Bible people. Hardcore. But before we don't do it, how many of us have... have 
you know, went through the algorithm black hole late at night looking for a perfect something that will produce a perfect something. Now, some of us are like, what does that even mean? Oh, don't act like you haven't. The diet or the fitness or the like side hustle money that you like, if you watch a 15 minute YouTube video by the end, you'll be guaranteed to be a six figure income earner. It's like, if you do these four stretches and hit this step amount, you will be insanely healthy. I don't know. But what I'm trying to say today is that all of us at some point in our life have bought into an equation that has worked for everybody. Why won't, why can't it work for me? And we put the time in and then we might find out, oh, it doesn't really work for me. You know, the first time I encountered this is um, when I was in high school, I played football, which it's kind of funny because believe it or not, football is my favorite sport. I follow it religiously, literally. I, I almost like joke with people, if I would equate all of my NFL and college football knowledge to like anything else, I would probably be a retired billionaire. But what's funny about football is it's like you graduate and then like I've maybe thrown a football six times since I graduated, which is over a dozen years ago for those wondering. So it's funny to me because I put all of this time into football growing up. The only problem was, I was 145 pounds. I was a lot of heart. Still am. Still am. If you couldn't tell. But here's how serious I got. The equation that I followed was this. My senior year, I had had a good junior year. And my senior year, I was like, man, if I'm going to play for the Packers, I need to put on 70 pounds. (laughs) Kidding. Not really kidding, though. But I remember I, I go and... I decide one day I'm going to talk to my biggest friend and he looks at me and he, we come up with a plan and this was the plan. Dead serious. So from January until April, I followed this plan until I realized that it didn't work. But I decided I was going to eat more than I ever had in my life and work out more than I ever had. And the plan was this. I would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I would eat a peanut butter and jelly in between every single class. My workout class was seventh hour. After I got done with seventh hour, I would go through McDonald's drive-through before dinner and get four McChickens. And before bed, I would drink a mass gainer shake. On my mass gainer shake was 850 calories, 100, or 140 carbs, and 60 grams of protein. I mean, I, your boy was, was packing the food down. Now, this was an expensive habit. However, I was determined the equation was this. Eat this. Turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because I never had a problem working hard. I just had a problem with the working hard showing up. So what happened? I do this for four months. How much weight do you think I put on? Zero pounds. Now, what's funny is today, the reason I tell that story is the equation for anybody else. Work out. If I did that now, oh my gosh, I'd be showing up like Nutty Professor. But the reason I tell you that story is because the equation should have been do this, do this, get this. And how many of us, right, have lived our lives thinking if I do this and do this, I'll get this. And we haven't gotten it. Or we get to the point where we get the dream job or the dream girl or the dream family or the dream house or, or we have none of those things that we're still dreaming. 
But we get to a point where we've gotten things that we dreamed we would have and then we realize, well, it's not enough. And the equation, we start looking for another one. Once again, the reason I tell this is because I think for a lot of us, once again, the equation of perfected faith, as I'm calling it today, is one that is both vague, but also direct. Let's read 1 John 4, 11 through 21. It says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because last week, this is all we talked about, which you can find us on any podcast platform, but we do not live stream. Sorry. Verse 12, no one has seen the God, the Father at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the first mention we see of perfected love and faith, but it's not going to be the last. Let's keep going. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. If you notice, there's two things showing up here. You're going to see them really consistent here in a second. Is perfect faith and the other term is abiding. Let's keep reading. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love, it is perfected with us. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I'm going to throw the equation. Justin, I texted you. You got it ready? This is what I get from this passage. The equation of perfected faith, love for others, plus the practice of abiding in God minus fear, a weirdly perfect faith. The reason I say weirdly perfect is because for some of us, it'll look different, feel different. However, what I'm pulling from this passage is this, the man who had the closest proximity to Jesus saw the most expansion, church expansion, saw the resurrection, everything, is writing a letter in which all he's talking about is loving other people and abiding for five chapters in a row. In this particular one, he brings in other component fear, which I also find interesting because is it, if we're really honest, how much does fear drive our lives sometimes? If we're really sitting here in an in a, in a honest state, would we be able to admit that sometimes our lives are dictated by fear more than anything else? So today, all I'm going to do with my remaining time is talk about this equation that John lays out. A love for others. A practice of abiding in God minus fear. A weirdly perfect faith. Or should I just say love that becomes perfected in us? 
So here we go. How do we get this equation inside of us for others to see it outside of us? You know what's sad today is this. I believe there's a, there's a, a statement that I think is so powerful. And it talks about sometimes we, we want to be inwardly formed but not outwardly facing. Meaning we want God to meet us in the innermost parts of our personhood. However, we don't want anybody to see him doing anything inside of us. See, that's the thing about following Jesus is his inward formation, but outwardly facing people should be able to see a changed person, a transformed heart, a transformed mind. And that is what drives not just curiosity, but in my opinion, conversion. The greatest evangelist will not be me on this stage. It will be transformed lives in these pews. And what I'm trying to say to you today is how many of us have came to church wanting to be inwardly transformed, but not wanting to show anything outwardly. So today, this equation is all about how we get it inside so that others can see it outside. And then ultimately it starts to change their mind and their life. Because believe it or not, I can't tell you how many times in my life people have just came up to me and said, bro, you act different. Why? Bro, you are just different. Why? You know what it is, is that when we make up our minds to be inwardly formed and outwardly facing, what we might find is God uses that faith to change others. So let's read, right? This idea for us of how we can get this equation inside of us for others to see it outside of us. The first one, the practice of abiding in God is just like the practice of any other thing that requires practice to develop. Awkward and uncomfortable at first, that over time produces a confidence, peace, and sense of pride and appreciation for where you started and how far you have come. Don't be so afraid of the starting line that you forget you were born to run the race with Jesus. Just leave that on the screen for a while till we go to the next one because it's a book, but it's fine. If you come here, you know my points are not short and I don't care. (laughs) But I say that because I think a lot of us, right, we think that just abiding in God is like, man, we'll wake up. It feels so good. It's fantastic. It's like just, oh, this is great. Not realizing that anything that needs developed over time requires a little bit of an uncomfortability, an awkwardness. You know, I played drums most of my life. And what I realized about drums was this, is that early on, because I was right-handed, I could do things with my right hand very quickly and fluidly. But what I found out is this, is that to be a good drummer, I had to work on my left hand because it was weak. In my entire life, it had never been used. My left hand was always kind of the thing that just was there because all of us know, right? Try doing anything with your left hand when you're right-handed or vice versa. But once again, when I would just sit there and practice my left hand is that my development went so much faster, but I had to embrace the awkwardness and I had to embrace the uncomfortability. For some of us, we've abided with God one time and it was so uncomfortable and awkward that we were like, I don't know if I can do this. Church is good enough for me. And one worship night. (laughs) And the reason I say this is because abiding was the marking point of the early church. When I first started preaching, I'm going to say this. I hated reading. I hated studying. 
I hated really anything that required a mild sense of an education property. And the reason I say that is because what, what's funny is this. I was like that till probably 23 or 24. And then I realized like, man, if, I, if I'm actually going to do this, I have to develop the muscle of studying and being with God rigidly. And so that's what I implemented. And now I can say that it's, it's funny, but I absolutely love reading. I love studying. When I'm feeling off kilter, I can usually trace it to the amount of time it's been since I've had my hour and a half study sessions that aren't for you, they're for me. And I want to say this to you. I think a lot of the times what we want is God to take the awkwardness and uncomfortability away. And in some seasons he does when we're so passionate and on fire for seeing him in our lives that we're just pushing in and pushing in. But other moments and other times abiding starts grating against your flesh. And I want to say this to you today. Outcomes are formed of habits. If you want healthy outcomes, you better have healthy habits. And what's sad is when we talk about the church today, how many of us could say we have a healthy habit of abiding in God? We want healthy outcomes. Do we have healthy habits? Because if we're talking about outcomes, but we're not talking about habits, then we're not having any outcomes. My biggest pet peeve in the Christian world today those who claim to be a disciple and have no disciplines. If you're not a disciplined learner, you can't claim to be a disciple. A disciplined learner, one who religiously, rigidly protects time of abiding with God to be formed inwardly, to face a world outwardly. I pray today that we're not people who look at the cost of spending time with God and say, I, I don't know, it's awkward and uncomfortable. But we realize that from that development place of spending time with him, learning to hear his voice, to rest in his presence, to seek revelation, that we might find a fulfillment that we never thought we could experience. The second thing is this. The compound interest of abiding is a depth of knowledge and awareness of the Holy Spirit in your personal life. If you abide but do not have the evidence of fruits of spirit or greater awareness of the Spirit's leading, your abiding must course correct before it turns to cynicism and criticalness. The Holy Spirit is the color added in a black and white world. I was challenged, one of my really close friends we were out this week with in California and he knows that I'm always about how do I uh, not increase productivity, but distance myself from technology and all that. And he looked at me and he said, hey, have you ever heard of grayscale on your phone? And I said, no. And he said, he pulled up his phone and he showed it and it was only in black and white. We both had iPhones. And I said, why are you doing that? And he said, because when you take away your color, the color of the iPhone, it's so much easier to not spend time on it because it's not as visually stimulating. And I thought it was so interesting. So ultimately I did it. And I'm going to tell you this. It works. It is wild. It works. Because something about living in black and white. When you know color or have experienced color. Ultimately disengages the brain. See this is what happens when we come into an encounter with God's spirit. 
is when we encounter the spirit of a living God, it adds color in places we never thought there would be color and allows us to see things we never thought we would see in which we can't return to how we used to function. The problem is this, is if we do not have habits of abiding and pursuing a depth of the Holy Spirit that adds color to our lives, then ultimately what happens is we can become cynical and critical of a world that hasn't experienced the things that we have. And I'm telling you this because this is my struggle sometimes, is I can be so cynical and critical of those who don't want to press in, who don't want to time in, who don't have the experiences I do, and then look and say, well, God, I guess it's just me and I'm going to do it. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. If we want to be inwardly formed and outwardly facing, there must be outward fruit. But I think a lot of us, what happens is we get these heavy, and you see, I see it all the time. People who've been through spiritual experiences and environments that they think gives them seniority above other people. That look down on others, that condemn others, that get mad at a fallen world for acting fallen. Man, don't even get me started on that one. I can't bear it when a lot of the times what we're doing is we're just, we live just on this elevated plane. But today, I promise you this, as God is wanting to add the color to your life through constant abiding and deeper revelation of who his Holy Spirit is to you. Because I want to say this, the Holy Spirit to you is different than it is to me, and that's okay. But I also want to say the Holy Spirit absolutely has been weaponized, absolutely has been used for vain and and man-made conceit and all of the things. It's... And I think the enemy wanted that. Because if he could get people turned off to what the Holy Spirit is and what it can do, then ultimately he can keep you in a black and white world wondering why you've never seen color. 1 John four thirteen. By this we know that we abide in him and him in us because he has given us his spirit. You know how somebody's been abiding? Can you see the spirit in them? Do they walk with the spirit, talk like the spirit? Do they encounter people around them with the Spirit in profound ways? See, the depths of abiding is just a depth of the revelation of what the Spirit gives you. Compound interest, think about this, is the interest you earn on interest. Meaning this could be illustrated by basic math. If you have $100 and you earn 5% interest each year, you'll have 105 at the end of the year. But at the end of the second year, you'll have 110 what I'm trying to say is this, is I don't think a lot of us realize when we abide in God, when we abide in his word, when we do the things commanded of scripture, what we're really doing is we're developing an interest in the Holy Spirit that is starting, that will compound in our lives by the amount of times we continue to show up. Value that is then inputted and restored in ways that you never thought possible. You know, for me, my abiding has unlocked doors more than my abilities ever could. My abiding gave us this church building. My abiding gave me a house at a garage, a garage sale. My abiding produced my relationship with my wife. My abiding provided healing and people meeting Jesus on the streets outside of any services here. My abiding is a list that can go on and on, but I'm telling you this, I can attribute most of what I've produced to a practice of abiding that adds a color that starts to see things highlighted. What is your abiding producing? 
Number three, if the devil can't get you to sin, he will try to get you to live in fear. Fear can take control away from God just as much and as fast as any sin can. Fear takes your eyes away from the Father and places them on the fallen. Eyes stay up so your life stays up. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves a punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Fear of punishment, isn't that interesting language, right? This idea that do we see God as a punisher or as a provider, a protector and a pillar or one who hates us and wants to see us suffer for sin. I want to change some paradigms today for you. I don't think God looks down on us angry for our sin. I think God looks down on us and he's sad because we're sacrificing intimacy by sinning. See, sin, all it is, is just missing the mark. But by missing the mark, if you notice what that definition that nobody talks about is when you miss the mark, you're just, you're distant from where you were aiming. What if I told you that every time you sin, you just create a little distance from what you intentionally were aiming for? See, I don't think God is like, gosh, I'm, here we go. Send the fire and brimstone. Let's turn him into a pillar of salt. You know what I think he does is he looks down and he says, man, they're creating more distance. I had more for them. I had greater love and intimacy. I had a unique plan, but they're choosing a lifestyle that I can't bless from proximity. See, that's what I think a lot of us, we want God to bless us, but we don't want the proximity needed and the posture of proximity, the discipline of proximity needed for that blessing to actually come forward. And I want to challenge us today. It's so funny to me because living in fear is this idea that that God is looking to punish. God is looking to know what fear is trying to do is just rewire your system's framework. How many of us go to bed at night and on our pillow, we are just anxious, running through our heads all the scenarios of what life is going to look like instead of choosing a posture of abiding that says, even as you have clothed the ravens of the air and the lilies of the field, you'll take care of me. Believe it or not, you see a hard wiring of fear in the church taking place all across our country. Why? Because you can rally around fear just as much as you can rally around faith. And what's sad to me is that when we start movements on fear, when we start movements on fear, when we start trying to rally around the fearful pretenses of a fallen world, I'm sorry, you just won't find me in those circles. And you know what's interesting is to meet somebody who has no fear. All of us know because it's so rare. Somebody who does not fear. What would happen if the church grabbed a hold of it again? People who didn't live in fear, who weren't controlled by fear, who didn't buy into every fearful iteration of whatever culture or or persona was trying to push on us. One of my favorite stories, Matthew 14, 26 through 32, Peter walking on water. I'm going to briefly mention it and then we're closing, I promise. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. They cried out in fear. 
But Jesus immediately said to him, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Notice, he didn't stop it, take courage, it's I, Jesus. He literally says, take courage, it's me. Don't fear. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sing, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Peter saw Jesus walking on water, had Jesus literally tell him to come walk to him, but then saw the wind and sank. How many of us have seen the wind and lost sight of the one who is right in front of us, asking us to follow him as he takes care of the waves around us? How many of us have looked as God has been challenging us into deeper revelation and relationship and instead of following the one right in front of us, abiding with the one right in front of us, have looked at the winds of a choppy world, the waves of a stressful life and said, man, I don't know if God can take care of these. What I'm saying to you today is this. May we be people who don't buy into this concept of a fear-based reality while professing faith in Jesus. Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Love for others. The practice of abiding in God. Minus fear, a worldly or a weirdly perfected faith. Let's stand to our feet. We're almost done carrying our crosses. I'm happy I brought another shirt. If you know that, uh, if you've been here any length of time, you know that we have different practices that we do here. And one of those is just reciting the Lord's Prayer together. So if you've been to a prayer room, you know in our kind of prayer rooms that every time that we gather to pray and worship, we recite the Lord's Prayer. So I want to invite us, if you know it, if you don't, that's totally fine, to just recite it together as we go into a time of worship. Our Father, who art in heaven, 